welcome back, everybody, to another new episode of The Jerry Lawler Show here on Podcast One. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Sean Reedy. You can find the show on Twitter, at Lawler Show, and you can find my co-host, the King of Memphis, and he represented that this past weekend at Jerry Lawler. Uh, Jerry, I know you had uh, a pretty boring week, right? Like, there's barely anything going on. I was kind of sitting around the house. or Yeah, just kind of kicking back. Not much going on around here. <laughs> Nothing no, going is... on in wrestling. Is I don't know what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I don't either. Let's see. Let's just make something up then, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Tell no, me about this, 1974. This was, this was uh, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, this was a crazy week. It was a nonstop, all sorts of things going on. But it, 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 it turned out it's really, really a lot of fun things yeah and you know when you've been around as long as i have it's hard to say that something you did something new something that you've never done before but uh that that all happened this week as well so it was it was cool and i guess we'll talk about it here today yes even yeah. in 2019 you may have pulled off your greatest entrance of all time uh there's been some i got a lot of response about that online about whether this beats the horse or the repelling from the ceiling and things like that so we will talk all about that but uh there's been a lot of uh to quote the godfather of wrestling podcasting, Conrad Thompson. There's been a lot of rumor and innuendo about things going on around WWE and the trip to Saudi Arabia and things that happened uh, at Raw Monday. Uh, can you give us any backstage information from your perspective on uh, just what's been going on the past uh, week or so? Well, it just so happens that I may be able to do that. And and so Conrad now, Conrad Thompson is the godfather of podcasts. Well, he, he does, he's got five shows now, I think. So he's... Wow. Yeah. Five shows. That's amazing. Okay, let's get back to what happened uh, this past Monday. And, and like, like you said, everybody had heard all the talk. Uh, you know, it was already rumored and, and, and talked about on Twitter, which I love Twitter. I mean, you know, it's just this instant... Instant uh, news, instant gratification, everything is just instant, right at your fingertips. As soon as something happens, you don't have to wait for reporters to go out and cover it. I mean, just, there's always somebody at the scene of every breaking news event, and they can just immediately go right on Twitter and, and tell the world about it. So we knew, you know, we knew, of course, Friday already, because that's when the uh, most of the superstars were due back to be on SmackDown uh, live. And, of course, we knew then they were stuck. In, in Saudi Arabia, that I guess that brought about the the in, uh, don't say invasion. It wasn't an invasion. It was a takeover uh, that brought about the takeover of NXT on SmackDown. I don't know. You, you watched you watched SmackDown. I, I'm looking back on it now. I don't know if they. Uh, I, I know they did acknowledge that there was a depleted group and everything. I don't even remember though exactly how they. Uh, talk, how they talked about it, why they talked about the different announcers being there, why Michael Cole and Corey Graves were. Did they did they acknowledge that, that they were stuck in Saudi Arabia? I mean, nowadays there's so much wrestling that's happened since Friday. I'm trying to think back and remember, but I think they basically just said that there were some travel issues and the, the crew was still overseas, most of the crew. Yeah, okay, right. So anyway, that was – and that was that. And then from that – sprang all of these all of these rumors and and apparently a lot of them came from the WWE talent themselves because from what I heard and what what all came out uh, Monday at, at Raw in a, in a big talent meeting um, it, it was you know there was there was a lot of uh, a lot of concern among the talent I mean every everybody that I talked to I mean all the way from uh, you know, the head of talent relations all the way down to all the different uh, superstars and everything. Without it, every single one of them said it was the worst 
travel experience of their life. I mean, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. But there were some current some some concerns by some of the superstars that while this was going on, that it was more than what was being told to them or what met the eye and, and more than what they were hearing. And then from that, and, and you know, I got to tell you from experience, wrestlers are, you heard the expression, old wives tale. Well, wrestlers are 10 times worse than any old wives about spreading gossip, about spreading rumors. I mean, they'll make up stuff and get it spread around, you know, as, as, uh, uh, as quickly as they can. And, and also the old saying, like my song says, bad news travels like wildfire. They, 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 this, all of this stuff, just these uh, conspiracy theories and rumors and stuff just started spreading like crazy. They didn't. And, and, and rightfully so. I found out in this talent meeting uh, that was held Monday. And, and, and let me get I might guess I might as well go ahead and say that uh, that's how I found out about all of this. There was a sign up that said uh, uh, Monday, uh, you know, a, a talent meeting. At 3 p.m. there at the uh, Uniondale Arena and then in, in, in the Meadowlands before Raw. So uh, I, I ordinarily try to avoid any kind of meetings. I don't. I just you know. I, I, to me, nothing. I don't. I don't like to know anything more than what I need to know just for the air. But in this particular case, I was like everybody else. I had heard so much, uh, you know, so many uh, rumors and conspiracy theories as to what may or may not have happened over there, and they ranged all, all sorts of things, you know, that uh, I mean, there, there was rumors that the Saudi government didn't pay the WWE the money or or, or Vince left the show early or something. I mean, just all sorts of things were going, were being said. And so that's what this meeting was about to explain to everybody. So I, I said, well, heck, I, I do want to sit in on this because I want to know what happened. So, you know, three o'clock, uh, Vince came in, Triple H was up there and, uh, he, he just he just took the um, the microphone and just started explaining to everybody. And and it was funny because Vince said uh, the same thing that I had said. He said, guys, you know, we've all been in this business a while. We all know what uh, we've all experienced some travel issues in the past. And he said, but I can honestly say in all the years and it's like been 49 years that I've been in the business. He said, I've never seen this many travel issues happen at one time with a plane. And uh, and he went on to explain. I, and it, it was it was really crazy. And the fact that, you know, I guess Vince and, and several of the several of the main people were on Vince's plane and they all everybody went to the airport at the same time and and they took off and they were gone. And then the talent, which amounted to about 175 wrestlers and crew members and, and office staff and all this stuff. They were on this, they were on this big charter jet, apparently a big, I mean, you know, like a big, I don't know if it's bigger than a 740. So it was like a jumbo jet, right. That they chartered from this certain uh, charter deal and it's a charter company. He just kind of went over what all started to go wrong. You know, the, everybody, everybody got on the plane and everything. And then, uh, Oh, well, it started out the very first thing, I guess, the tug. And everybody's experienced this. You'd be on a plane, and all of a sudden they say, well, it's a problem with the tug that's supposed to pull the plane away from away from the uh, gate. So they had, a, they had a problem with that. They're sitting there and sitting there, and they had to, I don't know if they had to get another tug or whatever. Then the next thing apparently happened with there was a problem with the manifest 
that the pilots, you know, uh, with the amount of weight that was on the plane and, and the amount of people that was on the plane, there was a problem there that took a, took a long time. And, and all of these things, you know, the, what, the, what the wrestler said later was it really wasn't being explained to them properly. Basically, the pilot said, when, I think when the manifest problem came up, the pilot said, we're just we're being delayed. It's just something beyond our control right now. But, uh, you know, we're working on it. We're trying to get it fixed. So then that happened. And then after they realized how, how much the weight issue was, then they had to put on more fuel on the plane because they didn't want that it was going to be a nonstop flight. So they had to put more fuel on. Then that took time. Then when they got more fuel put on, there was when they, they started the plane up and get ready to go again with the with the tanks completely full. Then that set off when they started to we're ready to take off. It set off some sort of sensor that there's, this was a, you know, a technical problem or a maintenance issue where there was something in the, in the plane that with the, with the tanks completely full of fuel, the sensor went off saying that it would, there was something wrong with a, a piece of equipment that would transfer the fuel from one engine to the other when one, when one went out or something like that. I don't know that that's one of the things that they didn't really get explained, but it was a mechanical issue that had to be fixed. They couldn't take off without this piece of equipment put back in the plane. And there was no, and they, they were trying to take off at night, you know, it was the middle of the night. There was nowhere to get this, they, they, there was nowhere in Saudi Arabia to get this piece of equipment. There was no other plane that they could get. Like I said, it was middle of the night, no other pilots. So they, believe it or not, had to fly this piece of uh, equipment in. From somewhere in Germany, it had to be flown from Germany to Saudi Arabia to be put in this plane to to make it able to take off. So in the meantime, like these, the guys had already been sitting like on the plane for almost six hours, not knowing what in the world is going on, what's happening. Everybody's, you know, losing their temper in this sort of thing. Then finally, they're told you're going to have to deplane. We're, you know, uh, we're going to take you all to a hotel. Hundred, can you imagine 175 people getting off this plane and going to hotels, being being bused to hotels in the middle of the night? All this happened, you know, because they left right, you know, they left after the uh, show and went straight to the airport. So it's like the middle of the night, and they're being bused to a hotel. And after they arrived, here's 175 people showing up at a hotel that was not expecting them, wow. and the. These people are, everybody's trying to get checked in. And it was just, it was just a nightmare, just a, just a total logistical nightmare. And then no, there was no, um, none of the WWE travel people were there, you know, to try to handle or help with, with anything at that point. So everybody was just on our, and, and, you know, I can tell you this from experience when, when JR and I, uh, went over on the, on the first trip, the Saudis, you know, they want to be, I said this before, they want to be, the majority of them want to be really westernized. They want to be like us uh, in the sense that, you know, they're, they're huge fans of the WWE. They love the product. They love all the superstars. They go out of their way to treat them as great as they can. But it's just such a, there's such, the language barrier is, is such that it's, it makes it really difficult to, you know, to do things the way we would expect things to be done, you know? And so, getting everybody, trying to get everybody checked into a hotel. And then finally, the uh, it was almost, I guess, the next day, then they try to get these guys out again. But, it, but I don't know if it was the next day because AJ Styles stood up and said, 
uh, or was talking about, you know, why the guys were uh, so concerned and, and what their thoughts were and everything during this. Apparently, then everybody gets put back on these buses and it's still pitch black. And you're, you're no, this was a cameraman, actually, that was telling me this. He said, we're put back on these buses and it's still pitch black. He said, no light anywhere. And we're just he said, all of a sudden we're driving and driving and driving us. And all of a sudden the lights are gone. You don't see any lights. It's like you're in the riding out in the desert on these sand roads or stuff like that. And, uh, and everybody's just going, where, where are they taking us? What are, what is happening to us? And so there was, you know, there was, there was some concern there. Then finally he realized they took him to a different airport from the hotel. They took everybody to a different airport because I guess they had, they had to have the plane moved from the one airport over to the other to work on it, to get the, uh, piece fixed in it. So anyway, they took him to a different airport. Then they finally got uh, they finally got on the plane and 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 came back. But uh, as as Vince said to everybody, he says, "Guys, never seen anything like it. I'm sure you've never seen anything like it. Hopefully, we'll never experience anything like that again. We'll always have the travel people. They will be the last people to leave. We'll we'll always take care of this, you know. And and like I said, Vince and Vince and those guys get out." On his jet, thinking that uh, all the talent was going to be right behind him, you know, so they didn't they didn't have a clue that all this was going on, and it was just a, it was just a tough situation for everybody. But the uh, Vince explained to everybody that that's all it was. He went through he went through detail by detail of what everything that went wrong and how it was finally fixed, and he, you know he he, he uh, put the kibosh on all of these. You know, he even he even went over all of the uh, conspiracy theories and all the things that that people thought. And he said nothing like that happened. There that could be nothing further from the truth. He said, as a matter of fact, our relationship with the Saudi uh, government and with the prince is at an all time high. They actually just signed a new deal with the Saudis to, I think, through 2027 to keep going over and keep uh, producing shows over there. So um, all of the all of the stuff that uh, everybody was concerned about it really didn't happen i think it had been a guarantee for 10 years of doing one show and then the second one was kind of like optional and now it's confirmed that they will be doing two a year which is a big deal right very big deal and uh and, and like he said like vince said he said you know i understand your guys concern and aj styles and carl anderson stood up those guys i think were about the only two that really stood up and kind of cons- and voiced their concerns and especially aj aj said he said i'll be honest with you man we were just we were just inches away or minutes away from from somebody going off i mean it's, it's something bad happening because they're as you can expect you know everybody's patience was at its wits end and uh, and yeah, like AJ said, he said, man, all I'm thinking about is, hey, I was supposed to be at home playing ball with my 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 son right now, you know, and, and instead I'm stuck here in Saudi Arabia and and uh, nobody can explain to me why. So it was it was a uh, it was kind of a hairy situation. But now, you know, everybody understood now. And and I think they'll have that. Uh, I think they'll have that all fixed in the future. Uh, Vince did say that they would not be using that that charter. Uh, company again. Uh, and then another thing that happened was, you know, as, as much time that went by, then they had to, they, they couldn't, they couldn't use the same pilots. You know, there's always some kind of rule about the, the time limit, a pilot can, uh, can fly or whatever. So they had to, then they had to, for the final flight, they had to get totally different new, two different pilots, 
than they were supposed to use on the original flight. So this, everything went wrong. Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me, and I totally understand where, where the rumors come from and everything, but I mean, it sounds to me like they were stuck on a plane for six hours. They weren't being told exactly what was going on. They're in a foreign country, people not speaking the language. They're, they're put on cars and driven in the darkness, and just rumors started circulating. But it sounds like, I mean, the, the charter company had made a public statement about the mechanical air, and then we had this, you know, press release about the relationship with the, you know, the two parties being extended. So everything kind of does add up, and it was maybe just something that was just a, you know, Twitter <laughs> controversy. Well, exactly. I mean, everybody loves everybody loves controversy, and I can I can tell you because I'm guilty of it myself. Uh, the wrestlers are the, the <laughs> we're we're our own worst enemies sometimes when it comes to talking too much or saying you know, or wondering and worrying too much and and you know sitting out or sending out rumors and and conspiracy theories and all that sort of stuff. But uh, but you know what I mean? We're all we're all guilty of that. Most of us don't admit it. We say, oh, who me? That would, would I spread rumors? No, no way. But we all do. So anyway, that was uh, it was a good topic of conversation. I'm just I'm so happy that. Uh, that I didn't have to go on that on that particular trip, but probably in the future, since we're doing two a year, you know, I'll probably be booked on the next one now that I'm the, the you know one of the commentators on Raw every week. What's your worst travel story of all time in the industry that you went through? Oh wow, worst travel story ever. Let me see. You ever get stuck somewhere for a day or two, or just a disastrous trip? You know what? I, I've been I've been so freaking fortunate over. All of these years that I've been doing this, 49 years myself, when Vince said, you know, you've been doing it 49 years, I thought, guys, Vince and I got in the business at the same time, probably the same year, like 1970 or so, you know. So I think probably what you try to do is is put the bad things uh, out of your mind and, and try, at least I do, you kind of try to forget about them. I mean, yeah, there's been, there's been delays that have been hours. I don't ever remember. I don't ever really remember. Oh, yes, I, get, I guess I do remember one time when uh, where I did get stuck for a couple of days when I first uh, started in the 90s up there in the in the WWE I was having to fly from Memphis to LaGuardia and then drive up to they drive me up to Stanford Connecticut to the to the uh, studios the headquarters and everything in in, in uh, WWE and every Monday we would go up there and do uh, on cameras and voiceovers and that sort of stuff I had to go in to the studio WWE studio every single Monday I'll never forget. I was just talking about this yesterday. Every Monday I'd fly, I'd, I'd get to the Memphis airport and we'd be on the same flight every week. Me and Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes was, <laughs> Isaac Hayes was the voice of the chef yeah. on uh, South Park. And he had to go and he had to go fly to LaGuardia and he, he and I were both going up to do voiceovers and he was doing South Park at some studio there. And, and then we would actually, he would work one day and I would work one day and we'd come back the next day on the same flights. So, uh, and that, and that was like every single week for a year or so. And then the big, that was the first time I ever heard the word Nor'easterner or Nor'east. Yeah. Nor'easterner. Yeah. I was stuck up there and we, uh, we went, I flew up. We went and did the voiceovers, and then they had a hotel there in uh, Stanford that you spend the night at, then fly back the next day. Well, got up there, and after the voiceovers and went back to the hotel, holy mackerel, this big nor'easterner hit. And I've never seen anything like it. We were It was just the snow and the cold and the wind, and uh, the airport was just shut down for a couple of days. And I, and I had to stay there in that hotel. It was probably three days that I was that I was stuck there. 
And there was a point where uh, I'll never forget. I mean, you know, they ran out of all the food in the hotel for people and there was nothing open. Somebody said, I think there's a little convenience store, like maybe a half a block down from the hotel, but there's no way to get to it. You know, there's no cars that were out or anything. So I'd been stuck there so long. I said, I got to got to get out. I got to get some food or something. I tried to walk to this little convenience store. And I, I, I'll never forget when I walked out the when I walked out the thing and I had I had a coat on and everything. But I, if anybody knows me, you know I very seldom ever wear coats. So it was just a more like a small jacket. And here it's like eight degrees below zero and, and snowing like crazy. And when I walked out the door, I'll never forget. I've told people many times it was like being slapped in the face as hard as you could by like maybe like Braun Strowman or something. That's how the wind hit you and the snow and the ice and everything. I, I, that was like the worst feeling ever. And then when I, but I just braved it because I was so, I was so, uh, you know, stir crazy from staying in that hotel room. And, and I got to the, I got to the little, uh, convenience store. It was still open, but I, when I walked in, it, it looked like, uh, the going out of business sale was just finished. There was nothing. I mean, like nothing left in the store that, that, that was edible that you could get. And so anyways, like a, a wasted trip all the way down to the store because everybody or anybody that could get in there had already gotten, bought everything that they had. So that, that was probably my worst time of being stuck for a couple of days in, in, in a city. I had a few, a few travel experiences back when, back in the days of the old territory days when I was driving on uh, trips. Uh, <laughs> one time I was going down to, um, I think I was driving down to Florence, Alabama, and I got just over the state line into Mississippi, and I got pulled over for speeding. And <laughs> the, the Barney Fife cop uh, kind of said, well, uh, you're going pretty fast there, Mr. Lawler. I said, well, I'm trying to make it down to the, the wrestling show here. And he said, well, uh, is, I'm going to have to take you to the, uh, I think it was like a justice of the peace or some kind of, it wasn't a judge. It was like, I guess it was justice of the peace or something. He, he said, uh, I'm going to give you a ticket and you can, you can just pay strictly to me or to the justice of the peace. You know, just like a, just a little speed trap place. So anyway, they wanted like, uh, the ticket was like $50. But this was, you know, this was at a time I didn't even have $50 cash on me. I'm going down to hopefully make $50 in Florence, Alabama that night. And I just had barely gas money. So he said, well, you're going uh, gonna to have to come in and explain that to the justice. So <laughs> we drive off the road. I'm following this little cop car, right, with the little one little at the time, a little red light on the top of it. So we drive off into the almost into the woods. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, where, where's this guy taking me, right? So all of a sudden we just pull up at this somebody's house and we walk, I get out and we walk up and, uh, and he knocks on the door and this little old guy comes to the door and he's the, he's the, uh, constable. That's what he was. He was a constable. No, that's who, that's who arrested or not arrested me, but pulled me over was a constable. And this guy then was the justice of the peace in this little community. So I, I explained to him, uh, that I didn't have the money. I said, I'm going down to wrestle and they pay me in cash and I can stop by here on the way back. If you'll let me, and I'll I'll stop here and pay the fifty dollar fine. And he's like, oh, let's see. Yeah, can you? You're gonna have to leave. You're gonna have to leave something in collateral. And I said, well, I don't really have anything except my ring gear, my shoes, boots, and that sort of thing. I said, that's all I got. And he said, I swear to God, he goes, yeah, get a spare tire. <laughs> 
<laughs> I said, well, yes, sir, I got a spare tire. Said, All right, let's take that off, and uh, you leave that uh, spare tire here, and then uh, stop by on your way back tonight and pay the $50. I swear to you, I take my spare tire out and leave it with this uh, justice of the peace and then drive on down with no spare tire down to Florence, Alabama, make my, make my $50, and then stop it. Like, that's like 1.30 in the morning when I'm coming back through there, and I go up and ring the doorbell and knock on the door and hand the guy the $50, and there's my, my tire was still sitting on his porch. Right? So I just get my spare tire and come home. So we all went, I mean, back in the day, that, that kind of stuff happened a lot. It was, it was some crazy travel stories from that day. Talk about paying your dues in the business, the <laughs> perils of showbiz. Yeah. The show must go on, spare tire or no. As always, a big thank you for listening to the show. We'd like to ask a small but very important favor of you. It'll only take a few minutes, and if you're one of the first people to do it, Podcast One will make it worth your time. We need you to complete a short survey, because the information you give us can help make things better for the show and you as a listener. Just go to podcastone.com slash survey, and everything will be right there for you. That's podcastone.com slash survey. The first 250 people who complete the survey will get a $10 gift card to amazon.com, and two grand prize winners will be selected at random to get a $100 Amazon gift card. How about that? Free money. It's a win-win. Our shows are supported by advertisers, so filling this out will really help us cater to the needs of you as a loyal listener. Go to podcastone.com slash survey, answer some questions, and potentially make some money along the way. From all of us here at Podcast One, thank you for being a dedicated listener. In, in happier terms, uh, kind of talking about uh, a return to the old days, we had you back on Saturday morning TV in Memphis in a big spot on College Game Day. I think everybody has seen online the <laughs> the spectacular Batmobile entrance and, and just uh, how much fun that whole thing was. How did that all come together? Oh, wow. Well, it came together because of the, the um, you know, the success that the Memphis Tigers, the Memphis uh University of Memphis football team is having this season. Uh, they're now, I think, seven and one or eight and one. Um, anyway, they, I mean, they they had a big game, a huge game this past Saturday in Memphis. Uh, they were facing SMU, who was undefeated, right? And Memphis only had one loss. And Memphis was ranked. Uh, I think SMU was ranked a little. Uh, SMU was ranked just a little bit higher, but both of them ranked in the top twenty. Uh, uh, top 25 of college uh, football rankings. So uh, this has never happened before. The uh, ESPN College Game Day decided that they're going to come and broadcast their show from Memphis. And ordinarily, if you've seen, uh, everybody's seen College Game Day, I'm sure, every Saturday, most of it, it's ESPN's top-rated show other than sometimes the games, but that's their top-rated show. And, and most of the times, they'll do the show from uh, the college, whatever college they're at, they'll do it from their campus. Well, in the case of Memphis, they decided for some reason they're going to have it on Beale Street, world-famous Beale Street, right there where my club is, right in B.B. King's. Jerry Lee Lewis has a club there, all of these great uh, these great clubs, the world-famous Beale Street. So ESPN is, is going to come in. They put the word out. They're coming to Memphis. And, I mean, the people here went crazy. It was like this is the greatest thing ever. You, you, And you have to understand that, you know, the fortunes of the Memphis football the Memphis Tigers football team have not been that great in, in years past, just on the last few years have, has it really been on the upswing and now coach Norvell really has the Tigers just, I mean, you know, we're, we're nationally ranked now. So that's a, it's a big deal for everybody here in Memphis, the success of the team. And then all of a sudden to have ESPN game day, 
come and, and feature the University of Memphis Tigers and the football team. And then the, the big game set Liberty Bowl Stadium that night, which, by the way, the game set a, an attendance record for AAC uh, conference game. Almost 59, what was almost 60,000, 59,800 fans sold out the Liberty Bowl Stadium. It was, you've never seen a site like that. But anyway, the deal was they're going to have this college game day show in Memphis Saturday morning, started at 8 o'clock and go until 11 o'clock. And what the college game day do, they have every week, they have a guest celebrity, or I don't know if it's, it's usually some sort of celebrity, but a guest picker to come on the show. And it's usually somebody that, you know, has some ties to that area that comes on the show and they're there with Reese Davis, Desmond Howard, uh, Kirk Herbstreet and Lee Corso, of course, Lee Corso. And they all sit around and they, and they pick, you know, 12 or 13 games that are happening on that Saturday. And they, you know, then they compare the picks and all this sort of stuff. When it, when game day was decided that to come to Memphis, all the rumors went out. It was it was almost like the uh, WWE trip to Saudi Arabia. Rumors were rampant going about who's going to be the guest picker and uh you know i i i didn't know i just i'd heard all of these uh you know these different names being bannered around and and of course of course i heard that could it could it be jerry lawler could it be uh the main one i think that everybody was talking about would be justin timberlake of course he's from you know he's from millington tennessee which is right the outskirts here in memphis and everything but he's considered a memphis guy and they said uh justin timberlake or d'angelo williams who was an nfl player from you know university of memphis and he's on tv i saw him on espn this past weekend d'angelo's name was mentioned and then of course joe theisman joe theisman a lot of people don't realize joe theisman is a memphian he lives here in in the city now a former quarterback from the washington redskins and and the other big name of course was penny hardaway you know anthony hardaway who is the coach of the university of memphis basketball team and they're expected to you know they're they're I just saw a poll yesterday. They're like one of the top four teams to win the national uh, by Vegas to win the national championship this year. Wow. I mean, so so it's um, it was crazy. All these names being uh, talked about. It just uh, I don't know. Out of the blue, I think it was Thursday morning. I, I, I get a call from somebody with ESPN and they said, uh, "Hey, we'd like to have you be a part of a, the game day show." And I was just, it was like a call out of the blue. I said, really? And they said, yeah. And so anyway, uh, they, we started, you know, texting messages, that sort of thing with the producer and the segment coordinator and all this stuff. And uh, I just happened to mention in there, I mean, they told me, I guess, well, one of the things was they said, we, we want this segment. It's going to be on Beale Street. And we think it's going to be, you know, just packed down there. And the people, the, the atmosphere is going to be crazy. And we'd like for this segment to be as over the top and outrageous as possible, and and apparently every week when the when the guest uh, guest picker comes on, they have a they have a contract deal with some airlines or some uh, uh, flight deal where they fly the guest in and they they usually show them getting off the plane and that's kind of their entrance coming to you know coming to be on the game day set. Well, I, since I lived in Memphis, they asked me. They said, "Well, are you are you going to be in town, or we do, do we need to fly you in?" And I said, "No, I'll, I'll be here." And I said, as a matter of fact, if you want this thing to be, you know, as outrageous as possible, I said, I own a Batmobile. <laughs> they drive up in the Batmobile and they just, they freaked out. They said, what? I said, yeah, I've got this Batmobile. And they loved it. And so, I mean, they first, you know, so we, I had to go down on Friday and they, they you know, they had all the, they had all the stuff set up, all the set and the, the game day, uh, this big, this big, I, you know, it's, it was, 
It was almost, but not quite as big as like the preparation and the setup for Raw or SmackDown, but it was almost that big. I mean, they had all these 18-wheelers everywhere and this whole big set built right in the middle of Beale Street. So they they had to block out how we were going to do the entrance. So I had to drive the Batmobile down there on Friday afternoon about 5 o'clock, and it, the Batmobile did a photo session with all the people from ESPN. They were so freaked out by just by seeing it and doing shooting the pictures of it and all this sort of stuff. So we, we did that, and... Uh, and practice how we'd make the entrance. And so then the next morning, we literally took, we literally drove the Batmobile down early Saturday morning, probably about seven o'clock, I think, parked it in place and, and, and got all ready for the show. And so, uh, you know, I had all my, they, and that was the other thing. When they said, we want this to be as outrageous as possible, they said, we want you to wear your whole king get up the whole the crown the robe or cape or whatever it is that you wear we want you to you know and and then they told me at that time they said because we're going to have lee corso we're going to have lee uh wear a an elvis outfit we got a we got an elvis wig and an elvis jumpsuit for lee corso to wear when you're on there with him so you know it's the kings the two kings of memphis meeting there so you know that's that's what we did we did we got down there early on Saturday morning, all this, the thing is set up. They were expecting, they estimated that uh, they might, would probably get 4,000 people to pack in Beale Street, right? Just a line all up and down Beale Street in the front and in the back of the, of the ESPN game day set. They were expecting 4,000 people, which would have been packed. We get down there uh, on Saturday morning, 17,000 people. Wow. 17,000 people packed into Beale Street. It was the most insane thing I've ever seen. I had seen once before where they had 10,000 people down there on New Year's Eve when it was like it was like uh, Times Square in New York. They did that on, at, at Beale Street in Memphis, and they had 10, it's estimated 10,000 people. Well, this was almost double that. It was it was just unreal. And so got up there and we 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 did the uh, grand entrance with the Batmobile. That all went perfect. The, the, the Loved it. We then I came up on the stage and uh, there was Lee Corso. They're getting. I came up during a break and they're getting Lee's his jumpsuit on and his putting his wig on and all this sort of stuff. And and Reese Davis was cool. He Reese was one of. Them. He's taking selfies of me and him. And Reese is obviously uh, uh, a wrestling fan because he he had made some interviews uh, after they announced that I was going to be the guest picker and he'd made like some wrestling promos. You know. Yeah. Things, I'm a, he even used he even used the term pally, which was you know a. Jack Jackie Fargo. I've never heard anybody say that other than Jackie Fargo. You guys were doing like a feud, uh, building up for the for the event. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but yeah, he was he was really great. And and the cool thing about it, uh, after we did after we did the whole segment, Reese Davis pulled me off to the side and he said, "King, I really really want to thank you. He said, I promise you, this was the best game day we've had in years." I said, really? He said, I mean it. This is the best game day we've had in years. So uh, I, Memphis did themselves proud. I was really proud to be a part of it, and uh, it was a lot of fun, of course. And Lee Corso, uh, Lee Corso was great. And, you know, they told me right before we went on, I didn't know this, but they, they said, Lee Corso's 84 years old. And, and you know, and, and then they, they actually said, and, you know, not fairly recently, they said he's, they said he's a couple of minor strokes. And so, you know, he said, just want you to keep that in mind. Don't try, maybe they don't really put him on the spot or anything or make him have to be, uh, but, but the guy was 
perfect. He was so great. I mean, it, you know, he and, and nobody rehearsed anything about what was the picks. Nobody knew what anybody was going to say. And then, of course, it came down to picking the Memphis game. And there was I had a great little bit that Lee Corso didn't know I was going to say. But it goes back a long ways. But at one time in the back in the football history, Lee Corso was coaching the University of Louisville against Memphis. And our coach, this was a long time ago, Billy Spook Murphy was the coach of the University of Memphis. Back, that, back in that day, it was Memphis State University. And Memphis was beating Louisville so bad that this was like unheard of, that Coach Corso, Lee Corso, came out on the field while the game was still going and started waving a white flag. <laughs> like, like to please call call your call your team off, right? And that made you know, that was that's been talked about for years. So anyway, uh when I when I got up and it came time for me to talk about the Memphis game and I'm sitting right next to Lee Corso and he's got on his Elvis outfit and the and the wig and the glasses and everything. And I said, Well Coach Corso, I said, Do you remember when you were coaching Louisville? And you played against the University of Memphis, and Billy Spook Murphy was the coach. Do you remember at the end of the game, you had to come out on the field and wave a white flag? And he said, yes, yes, I do remember that, Jerry. And I said, well, I brought that white flag, and I want you to give that white flag to Coach Dykes because he's going to have to wave that white flag before this game is over to call off the Tigers this uh, tonight on, in, this, in this game. And the crowd popped really big. And, of course, and then Lee Corso grabbed the, grabbed the uh, uh, towel, looked at it. He set it down. He said, well, let me tell you something. This is serious business now. And he takes off the wig and he takes off the glasses. He said, this, this is serious now. He said, the, the Las Vegas has the, the great Memphis football team as a six-and-a-half-point favorite over the undefeated SMU football team. And he said, and who am I to go against Las Vegas? And I said, oh, this is so cool. So they turned around and says, give me that tiger head. You know, that, that's the deal. He'll always put on the head of the mascot of whoever he's, uh, you know, whoever he's picking in the game. So when he reached there, he said, give me that tiger head. And the guy handed the big Tom the Tiger head, and he started to put it on. The crowd went crazy. I mean, you know, and I'm like, yes, yeah. And I'm, I'm really thinking, you know, he's picking the Tigers as well. And he gets the head almost on and he hesitates. And now I'm looking like, oh, what's what's the deal here? Right. And he takes the head and he throws it down onto the ground. And then he reaches back and he gets the SMU the pony mascot head and puts that on. Right. And, and oh, my gosh, the people, went, you know, he turned heel on us right there in Memphis. And, and the people were going crazy. And I, I said, oh, wait a minute. I'm going to have to pull my strap down on this. And I stood up and I started to pull the strap down. But I'm thinking, I can't do anything really physical with him. You know, I mean, I've got all kind of tweets. That said, you should have given him an elbow or you should have. <laughs> Pile, fireball, you a pile driver, a fireball. Yeah, and I'm thinking, I can't do that to Lee Corso, right? So uh, anyway, I did. I did finally grab the nose of the the pony and act like I was trying to twist it off of him and everything. And then with that, you know, that's where we went off the air. But the, the whole thing went great. Reese Davis, Lee Corso, everybody was awesome. Uh, hey, Lee Corso even even called uh, Peyton, you know, uh, Lawrence and I, my son over to, to our 11 year old son there. He was standing over on the side and during one of the picks, and he really did help me. <laughs> he, he helped me with just almost all the picks because he knows everything and all the statistics and all the players, everything about football, basketball, anything. He's he's up on it. 
So I had him the night before help me with the picks. And one of the one of the picks I was saying, I, I said, uh, I really didn't know anything about this game. So uh, I let my 11-year-old son over there, Peyton, to pick this game. And he's picking uh, Georgia or somebody, whoever it was. And Lee Corso says, hey, Peyton, come, come here. Come over here. And all of a sudden, Peyton gets pulled out. And he's on national TV. I look over at Lawrence crying like a little baby. And, uh, you know, they, they, they talked to Peyton for a second and everything. And, and it was like the, I guarantee you, for 11 year old, that's a highlight of his life to, uh, get, you know, to get seen on ESPN game day and everything. But it all, it all went great. Nothing but great response. And I think everybody in this city must have watched it because every single place that goes since then on planes, airports, uh, Gibson's donuts last night, everybody is coming up and said, man, you did a great job on the game day and all this sort of stuff. So it was, it was a, it was a big weekend for Memphis. And then, and then, oh my gosh, the game, the game was unbelievable. Final score. 54 to 48. Yeah. It was just up and down the field. Everybody scoring. It almost came down to who had the ball last. And so, uh, but Memphis pulled out the win. And this, this city has just been riding high ever since Saturday. And uh, the Memphis, the Memphis football team is just uh, doing great. Congratulations to them and Coach Norville. And I sent out a tweet saying, thank you guys for helping me put the, uh, up, up until that point, Lee Corso had been on a six game winning streak on his picks. And we put a stop to that. So and I came out nine three thanks to Peyton nine and three on my uh, picks, which was put me ahead of Bo Jackson into I think third place on all the celebrity pickers. John Goodman somehow John Goodman was on there one week and he was went twelve and one on his picks. That's so, impressive. But, yeah, that's real impressive. But nine and three was great. Everybody was excited and it was a, it was a great day for Memphis. Join me for Afternoon Cyber Tea. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, Corporate Vice President of Microsoft Cybersecurity Solutions Group. Each week, I will talk with leading cybersecurity experts and influencers to bring key security decision makers insights on implementing new tech. You know, when I kind of look at the research, 80% of companies want to have some type of chat box, you know, implemented. That's what they're saying. Next generation security risks. Even though we're in the industry that we're in, we're in a technical industry, we're not necessarily being as thorough as we could be. And the current and future state of the cybersecurity industry. Afternoon Cyber Tea with Ann Johnson is available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Our final topic of the day, another eventful occurrence for you on Monday Night Raw with you and your <laughs> broadcast team. Uh, tell us a little Almost bit about... Uh... Killed for a second time on Monday Night Raw, right? <laughs> I was nervous for a minute there. Yeah, so of course, yeah, we're early in the show when uh, Brock Lesnar came out and he's looking for, he's looking for, well, I started to say his son Dominic, but he's looking for Rey Mysterio. And Rey Mysterio has been upset because Brock Lesnar beat up his son Dominic and, and just manhandled him and uh, hospitalized him and all that sort of stuff. So then uh, after the Crown Jewel match, Apparently, Rey Mysterio jumped in and was hitting, I don't know if it was a bat or something that he was hitting uh, Brock Lesnar with. So the show started off, and, you know, and, and of course, it really started on SmackDown that Brock Lesnar was quitting SmackDown so that he could come to Raw and take care of Rey Mysterio. Poor little Ray, right? So that's how the show started Monday night in Nassau Coliseum. And, of course, we're we're still our, – our announce table is up on the stage rather than being down by the ring. So we're, we're sitting out there. And in the first segment, of course, uh, Brock Lesnar and, and Paul Heyman 
lets everybody know that he's going to be on the lookout. He's going to have to turn this arena upside down or inside out, and he's going to find Rey Mysterio, and he's going to do him in for what happened at Crown Jewel. So then, of course, it went back where he was backstage. He threw some poor, <laughs> some poor crew guy face into the into the uh, table and threw him down. And and I remember saying at that time, it looked it looked so scary. I said, Ray, if you're listening, if you're watching. Get in your car now and leave. Just drive out of here, right? And so then the, I guess then the next guy tells Brock Lesnar, he said, no, 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 no. He said, I th- I, he said you know where Ray Mysterio is? I think he's in that car right over there. And so sure enough, after me saying that, I'm thinking, oh, my God. So he go- Brock goes over to the car, rips the back door off. and I mean, literally, like, rips the car door off and then grabs this guy and throws him out. And he's this guy's going, I'm not Ray. I'm not Ray. And so then uh, I think he, like, kicks the other side of the door in. Then the next thing you know, I think after a commercial break, here comes here comes Paul Heyman. And, of course, he's followed immediately. by. And then he looks at the look on his face, on Brock Lesnar's face, was just so scary. But anyway, they, 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 the two of them came out. And Paul Heyman comes over to our table. And he's looking. And, of course, I'm the closest because I'm on that end of the stage. And he says, all right, you guys, somebody here knows where – Ray Mysterio is, and you better start talking. You better start telling me right now. Of course, we we didn't know. We really didn't know, right? So was, uh, I said, we don't know. Nobody, we don't know where he is. And then Paul Hammond says, oh, the king. King, you know everything. That goes back you know 32 everything. years to him shaving your head. Oh, you're not kidding. And his look on his face, I could see it. Every, every minute of that 32 years was coming out when he's looking at me, and he says, if you don't tell me and you don't tell Brock – where Rey Mysterio is, there's going to be nobody that can resuscitate you and bring you back to life after he kills you this time on Monday Night Raw or after you die this time on Monday Night Raw. And it was like the place went so silent. And I went so silent. I was just looking up. And like I said, uh, looking into looking into Brock, Le- uh, Brock Lesnar's face and looking into Paul Heyman's face, all I'm thinking about all those 32 years is it, he's, he's, he would be just just loving the fact if uh, Brock Lesnar just turned loose on me, right? So thank goodness my old but my new found friend because you know Dio and I, Dio Madden and I have not hung out together. We've not we we see each other for just a, maybe a few minutes before the show and for the three hours that we're on the show, we're, we're you know, separated by, by Vic Joseph there in the middle of us, but we're not big buddies or anything yet. You know, we, we just, we're working together and everything and I don't really know, but all of a sudden I feel this hand on my shoulder and it's, and it's a deal. And he's already got up out of his chair and he stepped between me and Brock Lesnar. And I, I think he was saying something like, or I don't know what he was trying to say. He didn't get much of it out. Like, you know, like, Hey, don't don't disrespect the king or something like that, right? And I looked up and uh, I, I got actually Vic grabs my shoulder, pulls me up out of the chair, and I. But the last thing I remember is looking back, and and all I could think of is, dang, Dio man is like towering over Brock Lesnar, and Brock's a big guy, but Dio's six foot nine, and so he's standing up to Brock Lesnar, uh, you know, toe to toe there, but. Boy, Brock Lesnar didn't he didn't waste it. I don't know how many words Dio got out of his mouth. It wasn't much. But all of a sudden, boom, a big knee comes up right in Dio's chest and Brock Lesnar picks Dio up and F fives him right through our announce table. I was worried. I, I just thinking, is I hope he's done there. So because me me and Vic were heading down the steps, right? So so uh sure enough after Did after you grab uh, your phone quickly this time? 
I get, I did, I had already had my phone in my pocket this time. I had not, I've not taken it out yet. Thank goodness. Uh, but I grabbed my notes up and all this sort of stuff. When I saw him pick him up, grabbed, grabbed the notes and then, uh, bam, down he went through the table. And I'm really thinking that time, at that point, is he going to come after me and Vic? And then out of the corner of my eyes, here comes da, 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 to save the day. It was like Mighty Mouse because here comes Rey Mysterio with like his lead pipe or like a bat. At first I thought it was a baseball bat, but then I realized some sort of pipe. And he did the he did the right thing. He went right for the knees of the big guy. You know, I always says, take his knees out. Well, man, he starts bashing uh, Brock Lesnar in the knees and the legs and down Brock Lesnar went. He just kept hammering away on those, on those legs until, I mean, Brock wasn't even barely able to stand up and, and walk out of there. But then, then uh, Ray Mysterio made his promo. And I, I guess he challenged, he's challenged Brock Lesnar to a match for the title at uh, survivor series. So it was, you, it was pretty cool. You know what that actually kind of reminds me of as you lay that out was, uh, do you remember the thing in Memphis you did where Eddie Gilbert was threatening to throw fire at Lance Russell and you oh. had been on the phone teasing that you were at your house and Lance revealed that you were actually in the parking lot you came out and had this big brawl with Eddie Gilbert and went into the parking lot and threw him into a car. Yeah. So it was kind of a similar thing there. It kind of felt like a Memphis angle. Exactly. Trust me, I do know for a fact that uh, the writing staff and uh, Paul Heyman, everybody, they go back over a lot and watch our old Memphis shows because there were so many of them and so many things that were done on those shows. They get ideas. They're constantly looking for new ideas. And then Jimmy Hart's favorite saying, oh, Jimmy, his favorite saying is, what's old is new, brother? What's old is new? And so, you know, they can go back and, and look at things that we did and do a little bit of a give a little bit of variation or just for the fact that it's doing the same. You can do the same thing with different guys. And it's, and it's you know, like totally new. So yeah, they they do go back and look at a lot of stuff, and and that may have been you know that may have been an idea that that was that was gleaned from. I don't know. I'm really looking forward to that Ray versus Brock match. I will be at that show since uh, it's in here it's here in Chicago, and you know I'll be in the arena as you're announcing the match, and I can't wait to see you know Ray goes back to the mid '90s, revolutionizing the business, and has been such a you know, great in-ring performer for 25 years, and Brock is so special and gives off such a feel that's just different from anybody in the world. I think it's going to be great. Oh, yeah, and this is the classic David versus Goliath. This is the classic underdog. Can he rise to the occasion? Can he overcome the odds? And then when you look at the two of these guys, when you look at Rey Mysterio and you look at Brock Lesnar, the odds can't be more in favor of the of Brock Lesnar than this in this case in this match. So uh, it's going to be that's that's what wrestling's all about. You know, it's a classic good versus evil. It's a classic uh, underdog versus the the uh, scary favorite. So uh, I, I think it's going to make a great match. And then knowing Ray, I mean, you know, this is this is the kind of match that that he excels in. That he rises to the occasion in these kind of matches. I think it'll be I think it'll be awesome. Can you imagine if you and Brock went at it in like 1983 at the Mid South Coliseum and the matches you had with people like Bam Bam Bigelow or the Road Warriors? You were you were awesome with monsters and having epic matches. Well, I mean, you know that was that was always that was always my uh, something that appealed to me most was the was being the underdog and you know going up against uh, insurmountable odds and overcoming the odds. I think that's what you know that's what the fans. That's what they crave. That's what they want to see. And, and you know, that that was what I built my whole or persona on, being able to overcome the adversity, be able to co- overcome the odds. And, and that's why I think uh, the career lasted so long because, yeah, I, I loved 
you know, bringing in guys that uh, that just seemed unbeatable. We'd make them seem unbeatable, and then uh, you know, get as much mileage out of them as you could. You know, and, and it's it's so funny because uh, you, you would talk to a lot of wrestlers or talk to a lot of fans, and they'd say, "Oh, you know, Jerry Lawler beat everybody in Memphis. You, you, you couldn't beat Jerry Lawler in Memphis," and that's or in that territory at the time, you know. And that is the furthest thing from the truth because I would I would mainly usually only win the blow off, you know. I would put the these guys you I would put these guys over many many times. I mean, like I can tell you how many times I lost to Kamala. You know, as soon as they get there, boom, it comes off. They take the title. They come back for the rematch. Boom, and lose you, you. You know, and you don't. You know, you don't. Uh, you don't finally beat these guys until it was. Basically, till the time was right, until it was, you couldn't do anything, uh, you know, you couldn't do anything further in the in the deal, and just hopefully you had another monster to follow them up with after you after you won against those guys, you know. But that's how guys like, you know, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, you know, Larry Sharp calls us and said, "Got this guy. He's just, you know, he's real green, just getting started, but he's a monster." And he came from the, that's Larry Sharp's the Monster Factory, and we said, "Send him down." And you know, it's the first territory ever looked or ever worked, and he but he did look like a monster. And so uh, then, right after you know, then we we did big business with him. We did big business with uh, with the Godfather. Uh, of course, you know, he, we brought him down for Larry Sharp as well. He hadn't even worked any matches, and he said, "I said, you know, send him down. We'll, we'll, we're going to make a monster out of him." And with so many guys that we did that with, Paul Hogan. Yeah, Hulk Hogan. But you know, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't do that with Hulk. You know, we we had him as a baby face. I mean, you know, he was so good looking and a fan favorite and that sort of thing. Didn't he come back I with Jimmy Hart though? As a oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Later on, yeah, later on after Jimmy Hart had uh, had, had uh, left and and you know he we, he brought Hulk back as part of this. Uh, just the history that Jimmy Hart and I had. It wasn't that, uh, you know, when we had this match, it wasn't really that I had heat with Hulk Hogan. Wow. It was just that I had heat with Jimmy Hart, and he was bringing in Hulk Hogan to beat me. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, my show with uh, Jerry Jarrett last week, we were talking a lot about the psychology of Memphis, and, and we are talking about your longevity and, and uh, why you were able to stay on top for so long and keep drawing. And he said it was because you understood the business and you understood – uh, and had the security in yourself, like the confidence in yourself, to make your opponents look great. And we talked about the fact that you did lose more than pretty much any top face of the territory days because you did understand the storytelling aspect and that the more you made your opponent look great, the more great you looked when you did finally come out on top. Well, I mean, if you look if you look at this business, that is the, that's the secret and that's the formula to success. And you look at most of the guys in this business that have been successful, even even up to one of the guys that you probably wouldn't even think that about, but he he learned that working our territory is Hulk Hogan. Oh, I mean, he sold big for for guys. Oh, yeah, sold big for everybody. I mean, you know, he made whoever he was working with look terrific, and that's why when all of a sudden when you, I mean, if you go out there and you just pound somebody down and you don't make them look good, when you beat them. It don't it don't make you look any good. I mean, you know. But if you go out there and make somebody really look good, and then you finally beat them, then that makes you look better than they were. I mean, you know. I just um, I don't know. I just uh, that was 
that just came natural to me. I just, that, that was just part of my thinking. Uh, well, actually I, I say part of my thinking or it came natural to me. Jackie Fargo did say that to me a long, long time ago when I was first getting started about, uh, about, you know, if, if you don't make somebody look good when you beat them, you haven't done anything, you know, or, or if, if, if you don't make them look good and they beat you, then you're, you know, then you're really bad off, you know? So it's, uh, that was just part of the philosophy that I, just, I say it sort of came easy to me, but it was it was Jackie Fargo that, that taught me that a long time ago. There you go. Well, that was an eventful week, a ton. That was uh, a ton of fun to go over. Uh, I know you are on your way to England here pretty soon. Anything else we should know about uh, seeing the King coming up? Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't think there's anything big. I'm going to be – I think I'm going to be in Middleton, Tennessee. This is a, this is a big deal. Um uh, up in Middleton, Tennessee, a little—it's—it's it's just a little tiny area, but it's where um, it's where my son Brian was living. This is the last place that he lived in Middleton, Tennessee. We're going to be up there uh, Saturday. Uh, not Saturday. It's going to be Friday. The probably the, as you're hearing this, it's tonight up in Middleton, the 15th of uh, November, that we're going to be there to, doing a show with Grady Watson. Good old Grady Watson. Back in the day, we had we had Grady uh, uh, figured in at our. Our, some of our Memphis shows, uh, he, he was from Mississippi, Walls, Mississippi, and we had Grady and featured kind of his whole family, so to speak. We had uh, Jim Blake's daughter as, as featured as one of Grady's daughters. We, we were like trying to make a Beverly Hillbillies family out of him. We even, we even had a guy from my softball team, and we called him Jethro. And so we, we brought all of this, this like hillbilly family into uh, Memphis from, from down in Mississippi. And uh, we did we did a bunch of crazy matches with them. Talk about crazy, crazy uh, thing that this brought to mind that uh, I, I just loved Grady Watson's accent. And I still do to this day, because it is like it is like listening to uh, a combination of Granny and Uncle Jed and Jethro. All of these characters from the Beverly Hillbillies combined into one. He's got such a thick Southern accent. And we did, you know, we, I mean, he's just the, uh, the real deal. And, and we uh, used Grady and, and the, the sort of the hillbilly type family back in the day. And, and I'll never forget, we did some interviews and I was trying to get him to say uh, in this, in this match, <laughs> you know, back in the day we were talking about uh, what, what you could put at stake and, and, we were going to force Grady. We'd had matches where if you lost the match, you'd have to eat a can of dog food. Or we did that with Jimmy Hart or whatever. And Grady Watson, uh, somehow it came up about, he was so far from the South. And I talked about eating sushi and, and he said he could not even, he could literally for real for shoot. He could not say the word sushi. He, he, we, we must have done 40 takes with him trying to do an interview where for him to say, I can't eat sushi. I mean, he just couldn't say it. Right. But anyway, we, we had a match to where, um, if I won Grady and his whole family, were going to have to eat this big meal of, of sushi, right. This raw fish and stuff. And, uh, that would be like the worst thing that ever happened to them. But if they, if they won, I was going to have to drive a tractor down Poplar Avenue, which is amazing, like a, wearing a wearing a pair of overalls, right, and a straw hat, 
right down the main, like the main street of, of Memphis. And sure enough, I'll never forget that, the, you know, Grady and his family won that match. And I had to, we, we did a deal where right after TV, I went out and got in a tractor and drove it down Poplar Avenue all the way out to East Memphis and people blowing the horns and waving and all this kind of stuff. And I'm wearing this hillbilly outfit down, the, down there. But anyway, I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but I'm going to be there with Grady up in Middleton on Friday. Saturday, it looks like I think I'm going to be in Toronto, Canada. This is the 16th? Yes. That's what I'm seeing in my book. I guess I'm there. <laughs> is there a convention? Sometimes, sometimes these kind of things just sort of sneak up on me. No, it looks like I'm wrestling. Oh, okay. Somewhere in Toronto. So uh, this stuff sneaks up on me, and I, I don't remember it, and I, I need to get on Twitter and kind of plug this. But I'm plugging it now a little bit now. Yeah. And then Raw, of course, the next week after, after Manchester, England, then we're going to go be in Boston. Boston Gardens. There's another historic place there, man. Very cool. And then Survivor Series is coming up up in your town, Chicago. And we're going to do Raw in Chicago as well at the Rosemont uh, out in Chicago there on Monday as well. So we've got Survivor Series on the 24th on Sunday and, and Raw on the 25th in Chicago. I'm looking forward to it. I'll probably try to be there all four nights. I love uh, I love the Allstate. It's such a... Well, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, I'm can't, I can't get you in. They have big signs up already. No, absolutely no comps. Oh, that's nope. okay. <laughs> I might be able to sneak in. I don't know. We'll see. I love the Allstate Arena because it's one of those old school buildings where the you know the balcony's like right on top of the first deck, and it's got that lower wooden ceiling, and it's just great noise, and it's a great building for WWE. It is an awesome place, and you know what I love the most about going to Chicago and being in the Allstate Arena? The location of the airport. The location. It's right next to the air, right next to the airport, and you don't have to go into downtown Chicago. It's it's awesome. That was eventful. Uh, safe travels to England. Hopefully everything notes. goes smoothly. I got, I, got my, I got my little notes over here, and the only thing we did not talk about that we had mentioned, and and we and it should have come up twice because we talked about the entrance in the Batmobile, and then we also talked about me wrestling uh, Hulk when Jimmy Hart brought him in, and that was one of the that was one of the matches where I made an entrance riding the white horse. Yes. That was the match with uh, Hulk Hogan with Jimmy Hart there. Yeah, I had a lot of people talk about it, and we talked a little bit about the, some of the different entrances that brought back to mind after after the people at after the people at ESPN Game Day saw me making the entrance in the Batmobile. They were saying, "Oh my gosh, that's the greatest thing ever! That was the greatest entrance we've ever seen." And I'm thinking, man, that's that's nothing compared to some of the entrances I've made over the years in Memphis. With the, like you said on the the White Horse and. And coming up out of the stage, of course, with the smoke and everything that it was that was inspired by a Kiss concert, and then uh, I, I I didn't even remember this, but I one time I rode a camel, <laughs> a camel to the ring. Did you did you see the video of that? I did, yeah. Yeah, I, and I don't even remember that, but anyway, we rode a camel. But the, the one that I guess was the craziest was uh, being dropped down out of the top of the Mid South Coliseum, which by the way is ten stories. 10 stories high from the top of the Coliseum down to the floor, concrete floor, by the way. And uh, I'll never forget, I don't know how, what what possessed me to say, I think I, I would like to drop down out of the ceiling, uh, you know, have the spotlight, the lights all off and all the spotlight hit and I'd be, be being lowered out of the ceiling of the Mid-South Coliseum down to the ring. And, uh, but anyway, came up with that idea, but I didn't know how to accomplish it, didn't know how to do it. So I talked to a couple of the stagehands. This one guy said, oh, sure, I can do it. 
this little guy weighed about maybe 180 pounds. And I'm thinking he'll have some kind of machinery or something up there. And anyway, we go up to the top of the Coliseum, all the way up in the top of there, there's this catwalk above the, above the tiles of the ceiling tiles, this catwalk right around the very top of the Coliseum. And he says, and we're down, I'm looking down, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is scary as it can be. And he says, here, you just, you just put on this little, um, this little harness and you like uh, uh, tighten, uh, fasten it around your waist and it'll go between your legs and you'll be in this harness and then the rope and you, you hold onto the rope and he said, I'll hook the rope around this catwalk, this bar across the top of the catwalk and I'll just lower you down. And I said, what do you mean you just lower me down? He said, well, I'll, you know, it'll be, I'll, I'll loop it around the catwalk thing and I'll just slowly lower you down. I said, wait a minute. You're just you, you weigh 180 pounds and you're going to hold me and just lower me, lower me down. And somehow he convinced me that he could do it. And that's the way that was done. I mean, there was no, nothing other than me and this one little 180 pound stagehand guy in the top of the Coliseum. He put the harness on me. I swung out over the um, away from the the catwalk there, and this guy's just standing there holding the rope, and he just you know one hand after another, he just starts lowering me down, and I look back on that now and I think how crazy was I to do something like that? But you know it was all about at that time it was all about making we were all trying to outdo each other on the big entrances. Well, when I went on the tour of the Coliseum, they said that you and Dave Brown had actually been on the tour previously and told them that story and showed them where you came down from. So they actually took us to the location, and I got to see it. And I'll just say you have a lot more guts than me. I I was scared just being on the catwalk. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. This was a uh, very exciting episode here. Jerry, good luck with your travels to England. Hopefully they're uh, peaceful, unlike what we talked about today. And a great trip for you. Exactly. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're right. I I just pray, I hope and pray that I don't have a repeat of what they had uh, last week in Saudi Arabia on my England trip. But I'm looking forward to see everybody over in Manchester, England soon. And uh, see you guys back here next week on another episode of The Jerry Lawler Show. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you next week. guys, it's MMA fighter Chael Sonnen. Check out my podcast, You're Welcome, with Chael Sonnen every Wednesday and Friday right here at Podcast One. We cover the latest in mixed martial arts and everything else going on in the world of sport. Listen free to Your Welcome with Chael Sonnen, exclusively available at PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app. If you love the show, share it with a friend and leave us a rating and review.